Welcome to the Hospitality Maverick Podcast with me, Michael Tingster. We are here to empower leaders of the hospitality and restaurant industry to unleash the true potential of their organizations. In today's podcast, I'm very, very excited to have Nisha Katona, the founder and the CEO of the fast-moving Indian street food chain Mowgli here. While the majority of the sector is struggling, Mowgli is moving in a fast pace in cities outside London. I sat down with Nisha to talk about leadership, food, her approach to growing Mowgli, and how to keep the culture strong as they grow and much more. You're in for something very special. Grab headphones and snacks and drinks and enjoy. Welcome to the Hospitality Maverick podcast, Nisha. It's a big pleasure to be here in Water Street, Liverpool, in, in one of your restaurants, to have this conversation about Mowgli and much, much more. No, it's good to have you here. <laughs> Thanks for coming all the way up. <laughs> oh, it's a pleasure. There was other reasons to be here as well, but mm-hmm. I'm very pleased that you had a little hour for us to talk about what's going on in Mowgli. Just briefly, I think a lot of people know what Mowgli is. Mm-hmm. You've been around in the media recently and a lot of good things happening, opening sites. But if people don't know what Mowgli is, can you just give it like a bit of a background story? Yeah, Mowgli is the way that Indians eat at home. That's it. So she's simply an Indian home kitchen. She's not the ultimate. We're not everybody's cup of tea. If you come from a different area of India to me, you will hate me. <laughs> you hate what she serves. So that's all she is. For 20 years, I have been a child protection barrister. Nothing to do with food, nothing to do with hospitality. I had no concept of business. In fact, I was raised to have nothing but disdain for business, which is dreadful. And would certainly never have thought of hospitality or restaurants as somewhere that I would want, would want to be involved in as a woman, because if you look at the way that hospitality is portrayed very often in the media, it is the psychopathic testosterone <laughs> slathered kitchens full of aggression, which is a real shame, because what I've discovered is it's the most magnanimous, graceful profession. And I gave up a brilliant profession to come to this one. And my mission is to encourage others to join this profession. So how she started, if you're an immigrant, you're you're obsessed by food. Very, very generally, that's the case. So I was born and raised an Indian. I was born in, in Ormskirt in the northwest of England, two parents who were doctors. We were always obsessed with food. As we finish one meal, you're thinking of what the next meal is. And also, it's one of those very few links that you still have to your heritage. So we've come to a completely English area. Area. And my earliest memories were of the most horrendous racism, you know, bricks through windows, and my, that was my earliest memory, actually. And being firebombed and stoned on the way to school, that, that was just the way life was. But we very typically used food to try and win people over. We just wanted people to like us as a family, and we would feed the neighbourhood. And that's how it started, and I saw not just how delicious this food is, but how absolutely addictive and how it, it won people over. And then you grow up, and you know, I was a barrister, and I eat out a lot. That's what barristers do. We eat out a lot. In fact, part of our training is dining. You've got to eat 40 dinners to be able to become a barrister. It's really interesting. <laughs> and, and I saw that the way that Indian food was represented on the high street was something that was unrecognizable to me. It's lovely and it has its place, but it's unrecognizable. Very often in the Indian home kitchen, it's vegan, it's light, it's fresh. In being all of those things, I think we as Indians are almost ashamed to bring it to the market because we look at you and we think you are the rich West. What you want is you want big chunks of meat in a thick sauce, Henry VIII esque you don't want lentils and and you know spinach poached with potatoes nope. <laughs> exactly and so that's why we kept it to ourselves and Mowgli became this living idea and I had a brilliant salary and a brilliant prospect at the bar to become a judge and this living thing and this is the bane of many entrepreneurs honestly used to keep me awake and it was the last thing I wanted to do but this thought came to me that if I'm addicted to this food and I feel so strongly that people should know about the way Indians eat at home because I also taught Indian food for about 15 years Indian cooking then why not 
try and take it to the market. And that's how Mowgli started. And that was just four and a half years ago. Oh, it's gone fast then. How many sites today? Oh, well, we just signed our ninth site. Yeah, uh, so, yeah, we'll be 12 at the end of the year. But I'm eight now. Eight sites yeah. trading now. And where, where was the that you signed? Uh, I've, just, site I've just signed Bristol. 20 minutes ago. 20 yeah. minutes ago. <laughs> I'm so glad you were here for that, Bristol. You know, because I handpick every site. I negotiate every single land deal. Every one of the... Honestly, it's no, to me, emotionally less than buying a house. These places become my home. These places become the home that I will house my children in, you know, my staff. It's the most important thing. It's so exciting. And suddenly you, you're going into another city that you can make a difference in. It's been a great morning. You call it she. That's very interesting. I've been here a couple of times. First time I was here, I came in and I was just here on a business travel. And I thought, what is this around the corner? What's happening here? And then I went in, there was this guy grabbing me. You need some food, don't you? I said, yeah, yeah, of course I do that. And then I could find out very quickly there's something special going on here. And then I started following you. And I could uh, really feel there was a different culture. And now you also talk about she. It would be quite interesting. What do you mean about that? She, she has a personality. It is like a living entity. And I think you will find this with lots of entrepreneurs. When they have this idea, it becomes a living thing, almost with a mind and a will of its own. It's crazy. And it's almost as though you it's begging you to give birth to it. So in my mind, it's always been this animated thing. I also think this thing, Mowgli, I, I just, it's almost, you know, you personify her, is bigger than I could ever be, better than I could ever be. She's doing more. She's cleverer in what she's doing for, you know, the cities that she goes to than I, than I could ever be. It's really interesting. It's like an organic thing. You know, I only ever work in Mowgli. I don't sit in head office ever. So I work in a restaurant every single day. I eat in Mowgli twice a day. And just being here and watching my staff animate her, because that's the bottom line. I come up with the idea, I design it, and then the face and hands of this creature are my staff. They are the face, they are the hands. I'd have nothing without them. And you watch them and you watch the way that they interact and you watch the way that the clients come in and give her a new life. And then you get these other ideas about, you know, suddenly it's as though this thing speaks to you. So I sit in the corner of a restaurant every single day and something will come to my mind. I'll watch, you know, a member of staff looking a bit sad or a bit sullen. And then you think, oh my gosh, this is an unhappy child. I've got to, what can I do? What can I do to, to make her life better? So I honestly think of it as this living thing, which is incredible. It's not inanimate in any way in my mind. So it's gone incredible fast from a restaurant opening point of view. You've done almost nine sites then when you're mm -hmm. in Bristol in, mm -hmm. what, five and a half years? Yeah. yeah, we will be, when we open Bristol, we will be five years. Yeah. So, so how has that journey been? Also, you coming from a totally different trade as a barrister. Mm -hmm. How that entry into the hospitality bin and then speeding up in that way and doing it that fast. There's many that will maybe be in the trade for 20 years only opening one site. Mm. How's that journey been? Uh, very easy and very pleasurable and completely easy underfoot. And I think it's the way that you philosophize about these things. I don't believe the world owes me a living just because I had a good idea, you know, or had an idea. You put it out there and fortuitously, thank God, you know, three weeks in and we had queues around the block and that hasn't abated. I, I built this on the basis of social media. I do all the social media. Every interaction that you have with Mowgli is actually me. So I start that at eight in the morning. I finish that at two in the morning. I respond to every single tweet, Instagram post, every single comment. So what, what you feel is whether you're wanted or not, whether you're rubbish or not. 
because you get that instant feedback from your clients. And when you know that actually people do want you in Bristol, so the reason I only go to cities where people call for us. So at the moment, there's lots of calls for Newcastle at Leeds and Glasgow. Those are the big ones that people are shouting really, you know, I'm getting tweets every day about that. And that gives you kind of a confidence. So it's not hubris that you're growing with. It's not because of that. It's because we're actually being called to go there. And then we open and we trade the way that we need to trade. So there's no anxiety on my part. In terms of how easy or not it's been, Mowgli's interesting, and, and I think we're different and probably inferior to most other restaurants in that. These are my dishes. These are the, If you come to my house, I will cook the dishes that you have in Mowgli. There's a handful of dishes on the menu. Well, it's a short menu, relatively. I have been addicted to this food, as have my ancestors, for hundreds of years. I've eaten this food day in, day out for 50 years. I have not tired of it. And so I'm not going to change the menu. And when you stop changing the menu, the variables reduce. Everything is locked down. It just makes it very easy to grow and to scale it up. Because I tell my chefs, you know, when you create my house chicken curry, it's like creating paracetamol. There is a speck down to the microgram. You do not mess with it. If somebody comes in and it doesn't taste exactly as it does in Oxford, they won't come back to us because you want that consistency. And when you have your team's understanding that really empirical nature of how you create the food, then scaling is very, very simple. You're not doing battles with egos in the kitchen. We have a document, basically. If you had never worked in a kitchen before, you'd walk into Mowgli and it would say, right, take this spoon, switch this light on, stand in this position, take this pan, put this much oil in the bottom of the pan and this many seeds. And that's what makes scaling quite a pleasure, actually. Coming bigger back to, to the food, because it's interesting when you said that there was no representation of the Indian cuisine on the high street. Mm. And you can see there's definitely a wave of that happening. You have like Tishoum doing mm -hmm. it, you have the Chili Pickle in Brighton that has two units now. Do you think there's now a more more openness to the Indian food in general? Or do you think actually it's driven by the whole plant-based movement, the vegan movement as well? The Indian kitchen is amazing when it comes to that. Yeah, I, that. I think that's just, I think, the, and the gluten-free. Gluten-free and vegan, those are just incidental benefits to this cuisine. Do you know what the truth is? I think that Britain was always open to how Indians really eat. I think Indians, is, well, the problem was with us is that we just thought, we are not going to show you what we do with the Savoy cabbage. We'd rather <laughs> give you the meat in the thick sauce that you want. It's that humility. Honestly, I know because what happens in an Indian home, so my mother, when we had visitors over, we'd get meat. Otherwise, you wouldn't get meat. You would get potato curry, cabbage curry, dal, chapatis. You wouldn't even get rice. And it was the most delicious food. But as soon as somebody white walks in the door, she'd go to the freezer and get some chicken out. And that English person would not want that. They want dal. Do you know they want dal and cabbage? I think England, it's a funny thing, I think Britain, because of the, their history, because of the empire, is possibly one of the most open-minded nations in the world when it comes to the, to the, the way that the world eats. Yeah. And it might be because, because of the, the empire they were exposed to these flavours. It might be that there's no chip on the shoulder when it comes to an English cuisine. They don't, you know, we've made no headway Indian food in France. In America, across Europe, we are very, very underrepresented. But there is something about the British psyche that is uniquely open-minded, I think. I think if it's happening in, you know, in some village in Peru, I think the British are interested in it, actually. So I think it was always the case that Britain wanted to know, you know, wanted to taste this kind of food. But it was we, the Indians, that shackled ourselves. And now, because I'm second generation, you know, so I'm sort of a a brown English person I'm just like you <laughs> although you're Danish but but it's true and so I don't come with all of those anxieties about I just come 
with this really open mind about what what actually do I like to eat? What would I like to see represented on the high street? And that's, I'm sure, what Dishoom do. I'm sure that's what Chili Pickle do as well. And so it's it's simply that confidence that you have as for being a second generation. I guess also that besides that the the English food palette have just changed dramatically over the last 10 to 15 years with new things coming in is mm. probably one of the most developed markets when it comes to restaurant from mm. an infrastructure point of view compared to the rest of Europe. I guess that there's some countries they would struggle if they went to France or Spain because mm. there's a very specific way they want things and the way you want to eat. So coming a bit back to, to opening, because you probably get this question a lot, but London, mm. you're thinking you're opening all these sites outside London? Why is he not in London? Normally, everything great starts in London. Mm. So, what is the story and approach to that? Is that conscious? Is that because you were very conscious? Yeah, yeah. yeah. London is for me. You know, for food, is the best city in the world. I love it. I lived there. I cut my teeth in terms of food in London. I go to London just to eat mm. because I like pretty, you know, weird stuff. And I, you know, yeah. I want pig's ears in a Sichuan sauce. Then I go to Baoshan in yeah. Soho, and I have to. I, I, I need that fix. It's crazy, but I do. So London is the best city when it comes to food. I also think in terms of the restaurant fraternity. Gosh, to not be in London, it hurts me because all my mates are down there. You know, I love that. You know, Kavi and Shamil, they're, they're like my yeah. restaurant brothers. I I love yeah. them. And they're down there. And I never see these people because I'm up here in Liverpool. That's where my and you are very good to come and do this podcast up in Liverpool. But all my meetings need to be up here. If people want to meet and talk, they need to come up to Liverpool. And it's interesting. So you can feel real fear of missing out. You can feel like you're out of the fraternity. You also feel, I tell you, you feel a little bit embarrassed because people almost treat you as though you don't exist if you don't exist in London. I remember going to a very important FTSE 100 party, Claridge's, and you walk in on your own because you're only allowed on your own. You know, so these are all the big CEOs of all the big businesses and there was cabinet in there and I remember they'd say, so uh, what do you, and mainly banking, you know, lots of, lots of, you know, huge companies, corporate, and they'd say, what do you do? And then you'd say, well, I've got restaurants and suddenly you sort of drop in their opinion a bit and then they'd say, oh, do you have any in London? And you'd say no. And it's as though you dropped off the face of the earth and it's as though you you're not in London because you wouldn't hack it because you're not good enough. That's the subtext. I tell you, in my own little tiny paranoid mind, that's what you think people think. However, for the same size of site that I have in Liverpool or Preston or Leicester or Nottingham, I would pay possibly eight times the rent in London. And as much as I'd like to be there, if I open one site in London, that's two sites outside of London that I cannot build. That's 70 jobs that I cannot create outside of London. And that's what I have to remember. Why am I not creating wealth? Why am I not creating jobs outside of London? Because what would often happen is I'd, you know, I'd, many restaurants do this. They'd have a site in London that's being propped up by the rest of the estate because it's so expensive. You know, look at the rents in Soho. So I have to be sensible about actually commercially what works. If I found the right site in London at the right price, I would love to be there. I'd love to be there. But I will never do that at the cost of, you know, two sites outside of London and creating that many jobs outside of London. And you know, it hasn't done us any harm at all. I really want to be the voice of Indian food, you know, because I'm, I'm a curry evangelist. I want Britain to be able to cook curry as well as my relatives in Varanasi. So I've dedicated my life to writing books. I've got a YouTube channel. I do lots on TV now about Indian food. And I think because I've got that sort of slightly, you know, that media profile that is national, you know, so I'm on the BBC a lot. It, to an extent, fills the void. You know, it's not as though we don't exist in people's minds in London. We just, they can't eat our food. They'd have to go to Oxford to do that. Or now, Bristol. I think it sounds very sensible. And I often think that some people think that all great things have starts in London. But actually, sometimes it's better to have something, again, profitability trumps everything. And you can open one side in London that kills the rest of your estate. 
because there's many troubles that comes with besides site staffing is a different mm. beast there and so on and so on. So the, I think it sounds very sensible and I'm not surprised about the story you tell. I, I've heard it from, from other founders as mm. well. When you're not in London, you feel a bit outside. You do. Do you know what's really interesting though? When you look at as we've stared down the barrel of Brexit at the moment, what is the statistic in front of house in London? Is it 80 to 90 percent is you know European here? My entire estate, 22% is European, the rest are British. So Brexit has had absolutely no effect on our recruitment Mm. at all, which is an incredible thing. And I know that that would be quite different if I was in London, because my European friends in London are are beggaring off back to Europe, they're not sticking around, and why would they? Well, there are many, many benefits, and I think I've just got to focus on that. And I think I've just not got to be hurt when people do sort of sneer at you because you're not here and and level at you the fact that you're not in London, or, or the allegation that you're not in London because you're not good enough, because you could stand the competition etc life's too short to try and prove a point I'm, I'm not interested in rising to any challenges well, I guess you set your own standards because you talked a bit about when you open a new site you will like it to be better than the previous site the best the every best. new Mowgli we open if it is not the best in the estate then I should not be growing so when I open a new Mowgli it's got to be the one that you want to be in more than anything and then I go back and I redo my old estate I you know you, you revamp it you back south of the old estate so that's the criteria that I impose upon myself and if I'm not doing that then I shouldn't be growing at all you know I shouldn't I've got another the job that I could go back to. I'm not here just to snarl up the high street. We as restaurateurs, we provide social capital to cities. It's really important. It's no small thing that I'm opening in Preston. I used to do lots of court work up in Preston as a barrister and you'd finish at lunchtime and there's nowhere to eat. And Preston's a beautiful area around there, the Ribble Valley. It's a stunning place to live. I would have gone and lived there if there were decent restaurants. I will go and live where there is decent food. Do you know what I mean? We really provide the high street. We put lights on in the high street. We must never forget that. It's a really really important thing we don't just take sites and continue the demise of the high street you take sites to make cities better and I think you're absolutely right that restaurants has now become such an integral part of society they actually determine tourism as well people don't travel around for location anymore you go to places for restaurant you just said I'll go to London people would travel to Copenhagen where I'm from to I go would to the best <laughs> restaurant in the exactly. world and, and that's what it has become. It's like a very important part of the economy and it gives jobs and it builds young people's confidence. Mm. There's so many things that restaurant can do mm. besides just running a restaurant and mm. make profit. Mm. We talk a bit about opening restaurants and growing and that's all good. But what is the bigger purpose of Mowgli? What What is she set out to do? Do you have like a big, hairy, audacious goal for, for what, where, she, where she ends? Do you know, this is really, it's a really important, it's the most important question. And it's a question that I think every founder has got to ask themselves at the threshold of doing something so I'm glad I'm glad you do because not actually do you know what not many people would ever ask me that and it's, it means everything so why does Mowgli exist why is she here and she is here to do one thing and that is to enrich lives in the cities that she goes to she's not here just to give good curry that's a that if I don't do that I need to get off the high street Mowgli exists to enrich lives in the city she goes to enrich primarily the lives of my staff so if I post which I will do today about Bristol opening what will happen is and this is the most charming thing parents will start to tag in their children saying go and work there go and work there instagram and facebook parents will tag in their children they don't talk to me they talk to each other that's the greatest accolade i could ever have that your parent parents would want their children to come and work in mowgli i'm an indian i want my daughters to be doctors now i want my daughters to work in mowgli do you know what i mean that's the most incredible accolade that that you could have so one is to enrich the lives of my staff two to enrich the lives of my clients by providing them with that you know 
place to go to make their city a better place. You know, give them decent food, decent price, make them feel healthy when they're finished eating. Thirdly, and this is becoming really very important, is enrich lives of, the, of, the, of my communities. So every single Mowgli has a house charity, a local house charity. And, you know, we've given over, I think we're coming up towards £600,000 in our short life to, oh, to local charities. Do you know that this is down to the staff as well? So I set up something called the Mowgli Trust. So I knew before I set up Mowgli, I knew that I wanted one of the pillars of business to be charitable giving. Because how dare I take up a place on the high street and not give something back as well. And also, and this is becoming the most critical aspect of it, my aim for all Mowgli staff is that they feel nourished, fulfilled and purposeful. They need to come into work and this is beyond them serving curry. This is, you know, they're having tough times at home with their parents, with their boyfriends, whatever. Work needs to be a place of solace. I need them to come in and be outward facing and to be fed spiritually, emotionally, physically. When you have a house charity and we have a charity champion in each Mowgli, that they are constantly thinking about ways to raise for etc and they're constantly being taken around so we very often we'll because I've got a real heart for cancer charities because the statistic in the northwest of England is one in two of us one in two of us will have cancer I expect my charities to co-parent with me so they take my staff to the hospitals so they can see what they're raising for which which you know is it wigs for you know chemo um, treatment is it a MRI machine or whatever so they see the hospitals they are made a fuss of by the, you know, whichever charity it is, it's really important. And that makes them walk taller when they come to work. So that's why we exist, is to enrich lives. And the way that we do that is by just my mantra in Mowgli, everything we do, every decision we make, every human that we hire has to have three things, grace, intelligence, and graft. That's the way that we do it, grace, intelligence, and graft. Every interaction has to be filled with those three things. Graft, because the busier, we're busy. And we need people that become alive more as they're busy. Mm-hmm. Intelligence, because intrinsically, you know, it's complicated food. It, you know, the anthropology, the geography, the socio-economic history of this food is something that our clients want to know about, and our staff have to be able to relay that. And grace, it's really important. I did a lot of domestic violence when I was, I didn't do it, but <laughs> dealt with it. <laughs> I'm not tall enough. <laughs> so I have a zero tolerance policy on any kind of aggression any kind of that kind of one-upmanship, lack of respect in Mowgli. And so there has to be that grace that flows in every direction. And it's safe, you know, it's a safe place for you to be very straight with us and tell us how you're feeling. And, you know, that not everyone's perfect. Everyone is flawed. Everyone will have bad days. Everyone will have a deficit in the way that they work. And if we can compensate for that and put you all together like a jigsaw that works beautifully, then we will do that. This this leads very perfectly to my, my next question I'm thinking about course leadership because to bring this vision to life to implement this vision in a restaurant setting must demand a very high standard of leadership and you talked about something I don't hear often but like creating a circle of safetyness for people so how do you do that in mobile especially when you're growing because that's often getting the right people on board you know and right people on board and the wrong people off the bus that's yeah if you articulate what you feel and you're passionate about it and i am and i'm shameless we don't have a pr department we don't have a marketing we don't have it's me all of it is me and i emote always <laughs> on, on on social media i will tell people what i'm feeling what i'm thinking i'll put it out and ask their opinion on it uh, i'll tell them when it's bad when it's good when you do that you attract the right dna 
anyway. So you attract the right people who are coming into your business. So we are like-minded in that way. But what's really important, actually recently I've been talking to lots of CEOs. I've been meeting CEOs from hospitals and from hospices, NHS. And the reason I've been doing that is because I want to know how they motivate their staff. The NHS staff and, you know, nurses of terminally ill children and the charities that we support, how you keep them content and motivated is the most astonishing thing. As a CEO, I realise that it is your primary focus, your culture and keeping that alive and keeping it pruned and relevant and accessible and understandable is your absolute priority. And it's not just being able to articulate it. So my, my theory is if my Lithuanian KP in Oxford, if you interviewed him for a job and he couldn't tell you what the Mowgli culture is, it's no use. My culture is no use. So it's very simple and my culture is that we want to enrich lives. It's as simple as that. And we do it with grace, intelligence and graft. That's enough for them to learn. But it's not enough for me just to think that they've learnt that. What I need to do is also, I need to know how every single member of my staff feels. Me. I, CEO, need to know that. So I have round tables, all sites meetings every week. And I have my HR team tell me who the stars are in each site, who the people that are struggling a bit on each site. If there's someone with a particular ambition on each, it doesn't take long. Even if I get to 40 sites, what's that going to take? It's going to take 40 minutes. It's worth it, isn't it? Once a week. I get to know that, you know, Lucas in Birmingham wants, you know, his KP really wants to be a head chef one day. It takes no time at all. But what I have to have is a good HR an operational infrastructure that goes out and gathers that information. So we have things called contentment assessments, where our GMs are tasked every month to sit down with every single member of staff and they have a 10-minute meeting, three questions. Are you happy? If you're not happy, why are you not happy? And where do you want to be and how can we get you there? That's what every single member of staff. So I have got KPs that have now become head chefs. Most of my GMs started as servers and they are earning more than junior doctors. This is a place to come and work and to stay. So my GMs are tasked with that to report to HR who report to me. And HR are then once a quarter doing the same exercise so that I can check that my GMs have got the same taste as, as I have, that they're doing their job properly. The most important part of my infrastructure are those contentment assessments so I know what every human is thinking. And some of them might hate Mowgli and I need to know what they might have somebody that's bullying them. They may feel that, you know, as head office, we're not communicating with them enough. They don't hear from us enough. That's really important. That must never be the case. My other big job is to make sure there is zero distance between head office and my sites as they appear around the country. Zero distance. The fire's got to burn very bright. I know that from being in restaurant for many years, that's the biggest challenge. Us and them getting into that situation as a head office and under restaurants. That's the biggest challenge every mm. restaurant chain and CEO sees over time. You know, it's an interesting thing because what I'm against is this sort of slightly inverse snobbery. It's really interesting because, you know, somebody in head office said we shouldn't really call ourselves head office, should we call ourselves Tiffin Towers? Do you know, this is something that I'm teaching my own children. Everyone has got a boss. I was a barrister. Your judge is your boss. The judges have the government as their boss. Everyone has a boss. There is no indictment in that at all. This craving for absolute in terms of um, nomenclature, equality, it's nonsense. Everyone's got, so I've got a I've got a chair that I'm accountable to. Yeah, I've got a board that I'm accountable to. And it's right that we're humble enough to know that. So actually, I'm really quite ardent that, you know, there's not a problem with it being called head office. What is the problem is our attitude. If our attitude is not filled with love, and that is the word that I use, love has got to flow in every direction of Mowgli. It's got to start in head office. So we are there as vehicles to make their lives brilliant, to make their lives enriched, nourished, and purposeful. That's 
that's what we're there for in head office. And there will be people, and there are, that shouldn't be in Mowgli because they get knackered when they graft. They don't want to, you know, be on their feet all day. Then we need you to go and find somewhere where you actually are going to have a more sedentary life. So we always part company well, but just the title head office in that, there is absolutely nothing pejorative. And I think people need to learn this business about, you know, I'm not, you're not the boss of me. That's got to stop. Humility is really important. It's important to know there's a boss, but it needs to be the right relationship with the boss. There needs to be that respect and trust. Trust, trust is everything. Saying. The reason that people want to work for, for companies or for people is because they trust them. And therefore, we have to be worthy of trust. I have to be worthy of trust. And if somebody doesn't trust me, they need to go, for their own dignity's sake, they need to go and find someone that they do trust. But I, therefore, every morning and every night have to find slice my emotions and my intentions and my motivations and make sure that they are trustworthy, that they're conscionable and that they are trustworthy. You know, and being surrounded by people that are not in business by not being obsessed with the bottom line. My, I have a really strong faith. I just think if I'm doing the right thing with the right intentions, you know, with love at the heart of it, then the bottom line will come. And if there comes a point where I'm not supposed to be doing Mowgli anymore, she will be taken away from me and I will start a donkey sanctuary <laughs> or whatever and I will be content. I don't grip onto her mercilessly. I have to just know that every morning I'm filled with joy at the prospect of working here and, and what fills me with joy, honestly, is you love humans and I think that's the most important thing in hospitality is that I, you know, in my old job, that's what I did is I did humans and I dealt with humans at the lowest point of their life and you are counselling them and you are negotiating them through their the, you know they're having their children removed or you're removing their children it doesn't get any worse than that you have to at the heart of everything you are love humans and that's the DNA of Mowgli and as long as we do that then head office is an entirely fine title and us being bosses is a good thing because I'm going to bring people up to come and be bosses alongside me people with the same DNA so we talked a bit about the people, the leadership. So, so how do you ensure? Because we talked about this before we started the podcast. About how do we ensure that culture lives? With how does she lives in every side in the ways she did? And number one, because this is something that's discussed across the industry. Mm-hmm. In every event you go to, we talk about oh, we have to put people first. It's the time we need to write that. There's nothing new in that. My mom did that back in the 70s and 80s. People always been the most mm-hmm. the human relationship. Mm-hmm. You just said uh, the humility around that. But how do you do that? Because a lot of people think that's, that's, that's difficult. You know, we can scale recipes, we can scale property, we can scale, you know, signs and logos, but we, the people bit is where they often hit the wall and mm. where things go really wrong. Really interesting. And this is why things like this podcast are really important. This isn't just zeitgeisty. Us as CEOs and setters of culture have to talk about it. We have to learn to articulate it and we have to work lyrical about it and you never take your eye off the ball for a minute. So first of all, you've got to get culture to flow right the way through operations. You know, culture is not something that exists as some adjunct to the HR department. It's got to flow through operations. So my directive to my operations managers is that every interaction... Every interaction that you have with any member of staff at any point has got to be a reflection of our culture, which is, is this enriching this life? Am I exhibiting grace, intelligence and graft in this? So it's there demonstrated. You know, we don't just come in and bark at people. We don't just come in and without, you know, looking into somebody's eyes, don't just go and check the paperwork. It's it's about the humans. So they are seeing it demonstrated, but it is no small thing. I met, you know, I met the the head of HR for the NHS for the region. Really, really interesting, fantastic people, because that's a very, that's a very tricky job. She was describing the culture 
culture and she said there are seven words that we use there are and she started to list them and by number four she'd sort of run out she'd forgotten what the rest of them were and I realized that unless you can have them in the fingertips and unless you can wear them on your skull when English is your third language and you're working in the in the dishwashing section of a Mowgli, culture's no use. And that's why it's really important that you break your culture down into very simple words to enrich lives. And they can learn that. And so at least when they're standing there and it's tough, they remember that what Mowgli's doing is enriching lives. We're not just there to wash pots and, and provide food. So, so one thing is that slight sort of education. They've just got to have that in their neural pathways. But it's also, you know, when you're doing contentment assessments, when your main interaction with your bosses is one where they're actually saying to you, we want to grow you how can we grow you are you happy are you sad why are you sad there's your culture you know that's this business about how can we make your life better and i think also just that you feel your boss is interested in that i guess that eight out of ten would never get that question for their boss because there's this i'm your boss manager relation but actually I, we talked a bit about earlier as well relationship is everything you don't leave the company you leave your boss and yeah. the relationship you didn't trust and respect in the end you know, that's absolutely right, and what an indictment. If somebody leaves us, people tend to leave us because they're going to go off to university to study something, and then I'm going to poach the hell of them back. <laughs> you know, so we've got people that go off to do teaching or microbiology, and I want them back in Mowgli. So, but if somebody left us because they thought we we're unconscionable, by God, that would stop me in my tracks. That would be the ultimate indignity for me. I was watching um, a documentary about Fortnum and Mason last night, and, you know, they were describing the way that this guy from Canada Book Company came in, and when he came into the floor, everyone would be terrified and he was known for ruling with this rod of iron you know that ruling with it's a game of throne things at the moment isn't it when you start opting for fear to be the thing that brings people in line it is doomed it's doomed because you turn your back because it's in you know it's instigating the most dreadful you know emotions in humans it's what you've got to do is nurture them so that they naturally come into work and they are at their happiest and that's when beautiful things happen. That's when they put their arm around you and say, you look like you're hungry. Mm. When you walk in or, yeah. you know, you're served by somebody yesterday that, you know, cared. It's because that girl is happy when she came, you know, or happened to be happy on that day when she comes. I just need that to be every time, all the time. It and is. that's like raising same, children. The insane thing with Camilla that served me and Sean yesterday was that she was going to an exam this morning. And it was her last exam. Wow, that's quite a new work today. Yeah, yeah, because like that makes me ready for tomorrow, she almost says. That's like amazing. So she actually used this opportunity to go to work, actually, to be ready for exam. Yeah, today that's at nine incredible. And she was doing yeah. the evening shift. And that's typical hospitality. That's yeah. the graft, as she yeah. before. Yeah. Yeah. You need to be a grafter to, you do. to survive. Yeah. You need to feed off humans. You know, yeah. there are two types of people, aren't there? They're the introverts and the extroverts. And the extroverts yeah. are the people that actually feed off contact with yeah. other humans. You, you you need it. I mean, I'm needy. I love humans. I need to talk to humans. Yeah. And it's it's hiring people like that. So you actually get your energy from social situations. Yeah. And it's just making sure that we spot when we've got the wrong people and there are people that don't really want to do eye contact. You know, sometimes yeah. you have people that work behind the bar that will do everything they can to avoid looking at that door when it opens yeah. because that's not their responsibility. I want Labradors, you know, I want yeah. people, that's what I'm like, you know, you're constantly yeah. fetching sticks to make people happier, yeah. and the minute that door goes, that's why I work in Mowgli, every time that door goes, you just think, I cannot believe somebody's come in to eat my food <laughs> that I cook at home, and they're going to drop their hard-earned cash for it, that's an incredible yeah. thing, and I need my staff to feel that same kind of Labrador dog-like yeah. thrill every time somebody walks through the door. It's interesting you say there's different personality types, um, I worked through my career a lot with MBTI to understand who was the best manager for a site, mm. but also how do you put the best team, who do you put back in house and yeah. who do you put front of house? Because you could be an introvert, 
you'll be brilliant in the back and you will do that you know following the recipes you were talking about for an operational consistency to the dot because you can link you can get your head down but you would not be good in the customer facing role because you're just on your uncomfortable place all the time so it's about finding out where can you boost people's energy the most or performance boost the most in the, in the role so that's super interesting yeah you're thinking about that as well yeah. what about operational because it takes a bit of a, a machine they normally call it an operation to, to run this you know consistency you're mm -hmm. talking about mm -hmm. how, how, besides doing recipes and training the chefs really mm -hmm. well what else do you do to put in consistency both? there are many things so for instance in terms of human contentment we've got the contentment assessments and a close relationship we have a GM summit once a month where all the GMs come together they are tasked more and more with owning operations to really and that's important certain elements of operations because they need you know if we need them to be more conscious of a certain part of the business to give them responsibility for it and up their responsibility for it does that naturally so there is that I tell you with Indian food and there hasn't really been a national chain for you know an Indian food florid national chain for Indian food and the reason is is because the food is really complex hitherto Indian restaurants have been dependent on Indian chefs and therein lies the weakness really so I on principle take curry virgins and always have and the reason for that is because what happens is I'm from the Bengal and we cook a certain way and as a result I will never eat in an Indian restaurant because there are very few Bengali restaurants so if I go to a Punjabi restaurant their dal does not taste like my grandmother's dal and so I do not like it <laughs> that's how small-minded we are and similarly if you know some people from certain areas of India come to and we always order dal dal is a big the big barometer they'll come and if it doesn't taste like their mother's hand or the grandmother's hand it just doesn't sit well chefs are the same if I went to work in an Indian restaurant I would tamper with the dishes until they tasted like my heritage so taking curry virgins means you get complete consistency because I train them train them in the specs train them in the philosophy what I also have is an army of super tasters super tasters in Mowgli we test them um, so we do lots of blind testing with food and there are certain nuanced flavors that I need to know that they can get the other super tasters are people that have grown up in my my home was a bit of a commune that have grown up with my food and super tasters go and do random massive food tastings in each site and score each dish out of X and you know I get a full report as and when they're doing it with photographs of every dish so we have this army of super tasters to make sure that everything is being cooked and presented absolutely to spec so you have that kind of you know layer in, in relation to the product in relation to place our restaurants I have something called Mowgli Aesthetics Police mm -hmm. map because it's a big part so we've got yeah. people product and place yeah so yeah. the people we've got you know the contentment essence etc product we've got super tasters place we've got map there are four map officers but each site will also have their own map member of staff and that could be a server that's just got a good eye for aesthetics each Mowgli as you walk in when you open a Mowgli restaurant up as a GM, you will have a catalogue and it will have a photo of every wall and how it's meant to look. And MAP comes and checks, again, does random checks on all of those things. Is the grout clean in the bathrooms? Is there dust on top of the awnings? Are the ropes getting dusty? Are the swings getting low, etc. And they come in with that clean eye. So there are all these diagnostic tools that I have. And then what happens is MAP produces a report and some of the things the GM's got to fix. You know, if there's a light bulb out, but I mean, I really don't tolerate light bulbs out. There's <laughs> laid back, but don't do that to me. It sounds yeah. like my mom. Yeah. It's the same thing with light bulbs yeah, and, and toilets. Yeah, well, we have people come in and propose in Mowgli and they have their birthday parties. And if you're spending your money to come and do that special thing in my restaurant, how dare I not clean the toilet? And how dare my light bulb be out, out above your table? That doesn't show that I love no. you, does it? No. So Matt produces a document that allocates these jobs to certain people. So it's, this is the really important thing it's that that being able to completely 
categorically read every one of those pillars of your business, people, product, place, and audit it and do something about it within two weeks of you spotting a problem. That's my time scale. So map spot something within two weeks, I need somebody to have come in and repainted that wall, etc. This is quite interesting because as an ex-McDonald's, mm. this is the way McDonald's have built a lot of their systems as well. There's an audit trail behind. And then, and then when you, we just talked about the other side of the business, the more emotional bit. So this is how you bring it to life. You actually make sure there's a system in place and, and consequences when she's not as she should be. Mm, exactly. And then bring it to it. So that's very interesting because many forgets that bit. They think they design systems, but they actually don't have a follow-up process. Mm. How do you deal with that? Because I guess performance goes up and down you know people want to do a job they they're, they're not coming in here to frustrate me that's why you need to be very clear about time scale so for instance with Matt the time scale is two weeks and if it's not two weeks tell me why and that's fine but give me a deadline I am a CEO obsessed with deadlines not punitive deadlines but so for instance I got a photo yesterday and we launched a new wrap and I get a photo somebody the ruby, tweeted the ruby wrap, the ruby wrap and the I monkey wrap yesterday. did you how was it it was delicious really I really enjoyed it that's very exciting <laughs> to hear but I got a photo of one and it had so instead of the red onions being sliced in half and then sliced they were sliced whole so it was a full circle a full circle red onion that you're going to have to cut through the membrane in that I don't want you to have to deal with a membrane of an onion so I send a whatsapp message to my operations chef and say I need you to go back across the entire estate retrain them on the chopping of onions for the ruby rat make sure they all know it's half and then sliced and I want you to confirm that you have done this within say eight days and give him a date so it's never a case of just saying I want you to go and sort this out have a date I then diarise that date so I know on the 24th of May I'm going to text Andy and make sure he's, everyone's been retrained. Ideally, I want Andy to text me by then and say everyone's been retrained. So every edit that you send out has to have a deadline and they need to know that these are not anodyne deadlines. As a CEO, the most important thing and the most fatal thing for me, somebody for somebody, is if I have to check that they've done something. You know, it comes a point in a nascent new business where you've got to do that a little bit to train them that, that in fact that's something that I should never have to do. It should never be the case that I have to check that you've done that and it's not been done. I have no problem if you haven't done it. That's not an issue just come back to me with a date that you will have done it by so that I know by and it could be six months hence yeah. and if you keep coming back with things six months hence then you're going to be <laughs> working somewhere else very quickly but you know give me a reasonable date I'm not I'm not a tyrant in that but you, the point that you make is really very critical is it's all very well having these ideas and these passions and these operational targets but unless they are achieved unless the, the people that you are passing them to are trustworthy harbingers of them they are useless and it's all to do with timing it's all to do with somebody saying to me yes we can get that done by X and I guess that I always say that you set the standard though if you don't set the standard you can't expect the rest of your organization to do that and that's why in my world timelines I'm very focused on timelines that's where you train at McDonald's you've worked on time scales all the time because that's where you do the incremental improvements but of course it has to be you know measurable specific and achievable and realistic and all that mm -hmm. and then of course you need to be patient as well mm -hmm. because I guess that one of the biggest challenges I found as well to be patient because mm -hmm. you are that step ahead mm -hmm. all the time mm -hmm. I guess with Mowgli Mm. and you're bringing the people on that journey. Where did you get all your inspiration from? Because you inspire a lot of people. So where, who's your hero? And uh, 
how do you get like energy and where, where do you go and seek new inspiration? There's different uh, facets of inspiration. So in terms of food, I literally travel the world. I work so that I can earn enough money, and I always have, so that I can eat across the world. So for instance, I've just come back from six days in Cambodia where literally I went to learn how they eat at home. That's my obsession. So I've been, you know, to wherever, you know, Laos, Vietnam, Cambodia, obviously India, you know, all across Europe, Poland, Italy, Spain, to learn how people cook in their homes. So I, it's my obsession, not restaurants, no, in their homes. I'm interested in, restaurants don't interest me. They they interest me, I'll tell you what's really interesting, is that in countries like Cambodia and Vietnam, it's very hard to, if you are a barang or a foreigner, they will take you to a foreigner's restaurant. It's like India about 40 years ago. The only place you could go, restaurants were in hotels. They didn't have restaurants. Still, my Indian family call my restaurant a hotel. That wasn't, you never, you're never exposed to how they eat. So in Cambodia, honestly, it was so hard to get into a home and find out how people are eating, which was really, really important. That's what I do for food inspiration. In, in relation to leadership styles, you know somebody that had a big impact on me, I only met him a couple of times, was Tim Bacon, you may not know, Ventures. But he was someone that was overtly affectionate with his staff. And I'm not talking in a Harvey Weinstein kind of way. I'm talking about he truly spoke in a loving way to his staff, but he was also known for knowing what he wants and getting it done. And he built Living Ventures, you know, his part with Jeremy Roberts built Living Ventures. But I saw that you can, because when you're not as part of, you're not part of the business world you know you, you, your your image of businessmen are J.R. Ewing you know you've got to be this psychopathic ball breaker and to see CEOs demonstrate care and love for me as the human that I am that's what I want to see you know so that was somebody that was a great inspiration for me the interesting thing is and this partly comes from the fact that I'm in Liverpool building it my own way is I've just got to build it my own way but remember I'm nearly 50 now and I think the job that I did it was all about humans it was about bringing out the best of those humans they're about to give evidence in a case where literally they can barely breathe because they're so broken it's all about bringing out the best in humans and so it's what I did in my last job I think that's inspired me to try and run this business in the same kind of way on the, on the end of the podcast we always ask the people on if they had like if they could give one advice to leaders in the industry on how they could you know either improve themselves or become a better version of themselves what would your advice be to them first of all you come from the outside you have a very different view on yeah. how hospitality should be done but also leadership yeah. what would be your one advice you probably have many but no the, the one advice really well I, honestly because I'm not I'm new to it and really you can only really have one guiding star you can only have one guiding star and everything else will come so I have faith that if I do what is best for my staff the bottom line will come if I have happy staff content fulfilled purposeful staff the bottom line will come and that is my focus as the CEO and it's an it's a strange focus isn't it I remember speaking to the CEO of one of the charities we support and he said you know we've got no shortage of passion in this business but if I take my eye off culture for five minutes and go to fundraising when I come back the nurses needs are above the finance department above the HR department above estates etc you have to keep your eye as your CEO on culture never forget that and the culture is the way your humans on the floor feel because they are the face and hands of your business you're only as good as that last service you're only as good as that last dish if you've got a happy chef and a joyful front of house then people will just come back and come back and your business will float into the future absolutely amazing advice i couldn't agree more people first and boost your business in general what we talked about is is all about you know people the love for people food and guests you invite in to your home or restaurant yeah then you become a successful business 
That's exactly it. And that's the word, isn't it? Is that for me, you know, it's just a home. It's an, it's an Indian home kitchen. But every decision I make is as though I'm doing it for my home. I design every Mowgli, choose every Mowgli. And then you want to populate it with family, don't you? Thank you very much, Nitsha, for coming on the Hospitality Memory Podcast. Hopefully see you in the near future again here on the podcast. You'll be bored of what I say, but <laughs> what can she possibly talk for an hour? <laughs> yeah. Thank you very much. Thank you, Nisha. Okay. Wow. Thank you, Nisha, for sharing your unique approach to leadership and how the team at Mowgli is growing something very special. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please give us a like, share, or subscribe to one of our channels, or even better, give us a review on iTunes. Thanks to Let's Talk Video Production for your ongoing podcast assistance. We hope you enjoyed today's Hospitality Maverick podcast with me, Michael Tingsa. Tune in next time for another industry interview. In the meantime, find out more about us at hospitalitymavericks.com. Thanks for listening, and be maverick.